This episode is brought to you by Relitigation. Relitigation wants you to know that it ain't over until you say it's over. Even though you fought and did not run away and things still didn't uh, didn't go quite to your satisfaction, there's no reason that you can't demand your right to a mulligan over and over and over. Don't let anyone tell you that's being a sore loser. No way. Relitigation knows that your best arguments are only going to occur on your walk home while nursing that fat lip and wiping your tears on your sleeve. That's the only way to find out what you should have said. That's when those pithy zingers will start to zing. The French call this l'esprit de l'escalier, the spirit of the staircase. Why? Because as you're walking up the stairs, worsted and humiliated, your rivals shouting derisions at your slumping back, you suddenly turn around and say, dumbass, compared to you, my ass has a PhD. Then when you realize that sounded better in your head than out loud, you leap upon them from your newly discovered high ground at the top of the stairs. Hi, Timo! Oh, no! Relitigation is the tribute that victory pays to humiliating defeat. And use the promo code RERED, one word, to get free their handbook of clever comebacks, bound in a wrought iron cover and ideal for throwing at the back of a head. And thank you, Relitigation, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Greetings and salutations and <laughs> other things. I was trying to think, what do they say? Is there a particular Commonwealth greeting? Um, unless you want to talk about how, you know, my urine is the gold of my subjects. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, I can't think of one. And I can't think of one in Viren. I can't think of one. I can't think of one in. Yeah. yeah. He, he never quite made up new things for that, I guess. For, for, for greetings. Yeah. 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 He, most of his, his uh, protagonists are kind of sardonic anyway. So it's true. It's not like they're going to be super expressive and mm-hmm. saying hello. Yeah. In fact, as far as I remember, like Severian just a few times will just come in and say something snarky. Yeah, he just cries. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we better get started. And we're still deep in the middle. Everyone's probably like, forget these comments. We're still. <laughs> yeah, move along. Made it. Move along. Exactly. Quickly. We're, we're maybe, what, seven, six pages in now? Yeah. <laughs> <to the> play <laughs> at this point. We, we actually do get further this time. I promise. Do we really? We actually <laughs> make progress. Well, you know, we did get a lot of thoughtful interest in the play so far. And that's pretty cool. Uh, given that I think that the most interesting portions are still ahead of us. Uh, generally, you know, I must say, Craig, you and uh, Mark still retain the most support, actually all the support among the commenters. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. Not, not entirely a hundred percent. There are a couple of people who are like, somebody said, I can't remember if it was this week or last time, but somebody was like, I, I sincerely appreciate James's approach for trying to, to really nail down the literal. Yeah. Well, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, it's it's fine. I mean, I don't have a competing theory at this time, so you guys might as well just take the reins. <laughs> um, but, I don't know. Hey, let's hear from YouTube. That seems like a weird place for us to start. We don't usually do that. 
Um, Somotomos says, it was kind of painful to listen to James in this one. <laughs> he seems incapable of, of seeing the play for what it is, symbolism rather than a straight retelling of history. Yeah, that's not exactly my point. Uh, Craig and Mark are very patient with him in this one. Yeah, that is that is so not true, but <laughs> I kind of <laughs> I edited out all the God learned James. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't. Um, so yeah, whatever. You know, you and Mark are just a couple of darlings. Uh, that said, I'm you know touched to hear that it is painful for some Tomos. Uh, I sort of expected everyone to find it kind of pleasurable listening to me squirm. So <laughs> yeah. rather than to be fully comfortable yeah, and confident. I know exactly and- what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if it helps at all, I recommend that y'all think of me as the heel in these episodes. That's a professional wrestling term. The heel in wrestling is the bad guy. He's the guy everyone boos when he enters the ring. And he's the guy we love to hate. The face, the face is the good guy. He's the guy the audience cheers. And Craig and Mark uh, are the faces in these episodes with their long golden hair and Beautiful, virtuous women at their side. At my side, I have, you know, some skank who will hammer you at the back with a chair when you're not looking. And essentially, I'm Hathor with Agia at my side. I was going to say it sounds more like you're saying that you're very intentionally taking on an allegorical role. <laughs> and- Stop that. <laughs> Where's my chair? <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, some of Tomos, he also says... Um, also, I always took the line, I don't work after six, as a biblical joke for God resting on the seventh day. Ah, you know, yeah. Yeah, that sounds really credible that, to me. That seems like it has to be right. Yeah, that's yeah. one of those things that, yeah, <laughs> it seems <laughs> like it It must be. And it's another one of those kind of snarky moments where the autark in particular is saying things that he may not know is a right, yeah real thing and talus may not even know but it's definitely one of those wink wink moments right yeah that's that's, like, yeah 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 good good catch somotomos that's good let's see on reddit christopher taylor he's also not crazy about my approach he says i must admit I've been feeling frustrated by James's approach to the play. I feel much more inclined toward Craig and Mark's take. James asks, what's the point of the play if it doesn't map directly to events in the book? But I would ask the opposite. What is the point if it doesn't tell us anything we can't learn elsewhere? Well, Craig, I think I am going for something you can't pick up from the book. I'm just dissatisfied with the idea that these allegorical depictions. Uh, I think we can agree that they are some kind of allegory, even if we struggle to agree on what kind. I'm dissatisfied with interpreting these metaphors as alluding to what seems to me more metaphors of Severian's relationship in some way to earth or to history or some moral. I'm going for something I get my fingers around. (laughs) It doesn't mean I'll get it. Uh, Again, I think of me as the heel here. I think I'm feeling misunderstood, just as <laughs> the animal said. I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. But I'll, you know, I'll get to reframing my perspective later and see what you think. Um, if you think about this as written before Earth of New Sun, then really the only place that we get a lot of this information about the flood, um, mm-hmm. that we get some kind of 
confirmation that this is a kind of full-on biblical type of creation story that in some way Severian is involved in, that really only comes from the play. In fact, all the other hints just about that we get are very elusive and are very really strictly metaphor. Like we get the conciliator, which is kind of metaphorically like Christ, which is kind of metaphorically like the second coming or something like that. But without Earth of the New Sun, the play really, this is the only place that we really get anything like a spelling out of that overall story that isn't like, um, really like just little metaphorical or symbolic hints. Well, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I want you to keep in mind (laughs) that this is what your point about the the flood. So because I I think I'm going to come I think I'm going to come back to them. I still try to make an argument here. In fact, one thing I I don't think I've said this in anything that we've recorded further and certainly yet, but I actually feel like the play as I'm reading it this time is a lot more powerful without Earth, like Mm, just because it seems like then it retains a little bit of fun mystery and elusiveness and possibility. And it's more Wolfian because you're then having to still kind of guess at a picture of the full backstory and the hints are there. Um, It's maybe more satisfying in the sense of like wanting to have confirmation of how Wolf stuff works together so that Mm -hmm. If you read the play and thought, oh, this means that X, Y, and Z is happening, then you go to Earth and see, ah, yes, I was basically right. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty cool. But it's very much more Wolfian to be like, oh, everything's there. It's just wrapped up in a weird, a weird direction. And, yeah. and I think one thing, too, that I'd say about, about the stuff about metaphor is that I, I feel like Mark and I are probably in some ways with this one saying that one way – it's in a lot of ways, it's not just staying metaphor is that, that what it's doing is it actually is pointing to something that you can find as a literal meaning in the play rather than being just sort of, you know, an allegorical story of, you know, the morality of Severian situation. Whereas we're saying, no, it's not just that it's kind of telling you the plot. Like it's telling you actions that happen, stuff like that. So yeah, but anyway, we get more into that. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, I, I, yeah, I feel like that's what I'm going for, but so, where are we missing each other? I mean, it's, <laughs> maybe we got to finish. I feel it. like you guys are going for a feel rather than rather than say, well, this line maps over to this meaning and this meaning is saying, well, you know, oh, I see that. Okay, yeah. so yeah, yeah, in the in the manner in which it's done, that may be right. Like like we're 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 having to read certain possibilities from like a biblical illusion or a joke on a biblical illusion right. and then saying, but if you take what that could really mean, it could mean X. So, yeah. yeah. So, but Christopher goes on. One aspect of the play that you don't seem to have covered much yet is what does it mean that Talos is the composer? Craig compared it to a medieval morality play and how they endeavor to impart moral lessons under a covering of entertaining frivolity. I certainly agree with this comparison, but I wonder how it sits with Talos's sardonic, somewhat malicious character. He seems more inclined to make a mockery of tradition than to teach it. That's a very good point. Very good point. Yeah, I agree with that. I even responded in that Reddit thread and basically said, yeah, like that, that's, <laughs> that's a big question mark for how it works. Because I think that Talos has caught on to something. 
I don't know whether Talos is doing that intentionally or whether it's just a kind of he's getting it because of archetypal structures or he's mm-hmm. getting it because of these stories were passed down. You know, that's what I haven't decided yet. And partly that's because to me, the last parts of the play are the places where I think we might be able to decide what Talos is trying to intentionally say mm-hmm. with the play. And we just haven't gotten there yet. Um, but no, I, I absolutely agree that that is a super big question um, because you have a real sketchy character who is writing this. And so if we're going to say, ah, but this play is actually telling us the truth of the actual backstory. OK, well, that's weird that it's filtered through this dude who is a servant <laughs> of the guy who's doing it the wrong way and right. who is a tricky fox and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, so right. that's that's a big, weird, dark veil that we're looking yeah. for. Yeah. Uh, and he also goes on. He says, uh, conversely, at this point in the narrative, Baldanders still hopes to become the new son himself. If it is intended earnestly, then the play is intended by Talos to be a prophecy of Baldanders, not Severian. And I got to say, you know, Craig, I used to like that angle a lot more than I do now, uh, that Baldanders was a new son candidate. But that idea that maybe Baldanders is Meshia or the Autark, I mean, that's an alternative way of looking at it. I'll have to keep my eye out for how that holds up. Yeah. And that gets back to exactly how you read what Talos is saying, because for example, in what we're going to talk about in this episode, there's a, a moment where Nod asks Meshia if he can come sit at the table after when, when the new race is founded. Mm-hmm. And if we take Nod to be somehow Baldanders straight, it's actually then saying Baldanders wants a smaller role in the ultimately new race, which is not, I think, what he really wants. Like, doesn't it doesn't sound like my boy, Baldanders. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's a point where if and, and again, if if Nod is supposed to be equivalent to Baldanders in this, then the way the play ends up portraying this character seems to suggest that Baldi started off or or might be in a certain place not quite so arrogant or not quite so self-interested as I think a lot of us take him to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll have to decide what happens with Nod in the end. And then what happens then? Why is it that Nod is the character who, you know, of course breaks out and causes chaos. At right. The end of exactly. The play, right. Who breaks off against everything that goes on and destroys the whole breaks thing. the fourth wall. <laughs> uh, rather literally, it seems yeah, like the he, fourth you know, dimension, uh, maybe literally breaks the the fourth wall of the audience and tries to break some people. <laughs> but yeah, no, anyway, great. Absolutely great question. Um, one that you're right. I feel like we should have probably said more in the setup for it, but uh, it seems like something we can answer better once we've gone through a whole lot more of the play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, maybe we need to do the play after we've done the play and yeah. <laughs> we're not going to do that. So. <laughs> but no, it, I think he's absolutely right. It's, it really is an essential question. Yeah. Figuring out the play. Yeah. So let's see. He has another good catch. This is a really good one. He says, uh, sons raised from stones is probably a reference to the Greek version of the flood myth. The sole survivors of the world-destroying flood are Deucalion and his wife, Pyrrha, who find themselves left with the question of how to ensure humanity's survival. After all, the idea of a single couple who could become the sole ancestors of humanity is patently ridiculous. So instead, they do something more realistic. They consult with an oracle about what to do. 
And how they're able to do that with no other humans around is left as an exercise for the reader. And the oracle instructs them to throw the bones of your grandmother over your shoulder. And Decalion and Pyrrha realize that the grandmother of humanity is the earth and her bones are stones. And they throw the stones over their shoulders and the stones are transformed into a new generation of humans. Very, very good, Christopher. Yeah. Also really makes me want to think about those seeds that the old woman or old. Uh, yeah. <laughs> are those, what's the relationship between seeds and stones? But yeah, I, uh, I don't know. So many, so many things where I may be just finding analogies where there are no intentional. Yeah. But, yeah. But no, I, I really like, I, I like that. A mm-hmm. lot. And Mike Farrar. For your arms from me. Added that the stones to Kalian threw became men and those that Pyrrha threw. Uh, became women, and also that Deucalion was the son of Prometheus, the Titan who gave fire to mankind. And also, he, you know, his wife, Pyrrha, was the daughter of Prometheus's brother, Epimetheus, and also of uh, Pandora. So, you know, they were first cousins. And uh, let's see, Mike also says, it's weird how once you read Earth of the New Sun and you know that Earth drowns, the repeated water flood drowning imagery jumps right out. Later in the play, Jahi and Meshiana rest under a rowan tree, a tree which in Norse myth uh, bent a branch over a raging river to save Thor from drowning. Yeah, yeah, that won't show up in this episode. It, it comes up in the next one. But Mike has a point. And furthermore, I think Christopher's catch is a very good example of a reference to the flood that would be impossible to catch unless you already know that the coming of the new sun will involve a flood. And I'd be inclined to posit that maybe Wolf made some reference in the manuscript and, and made it more obscure, <laughs> knowing that he was going to write Earth and the New Sun. But based on interviews, it appears that the sequel was only in vague talking stage when uh, Claw the Conciliator came out. So, mm. nope. Well, I do have to say that the talk there about Prometheus is something that I am fascinated by. And that relationship there is really telling and makes me feel like maybe there's more to this mythic connection than, than just the general flood analogy. Just because we do have a Prometheus story in Earth of the New Sun. That there are these Titan-like creatures, the Hyrodules, who are literally giving a certain kind of fire to humanity to create something new right um yeah you know uh, and megatherians who are handing out pandora yeah. boxes <laughs> right exactly so there there is definitely some prometheus stuff going on here which makes me think i feel like i haven't seen people really try to pin down prometheus imagery too much in this which is surprising just especially since what we're doing is we're literally getting a new sun a new mm-hmm. kind of a better fire you know it, yeah. it's so fitting yeah yeah def yeah and anyway, this brings me to John Cassani's comment on Facebook. He says, I have to agree with Craig and Mark. The main thrust of the play is to reveal the coming flood, even if none of us would have understood that without Earth. Not that it only does that, but I think its literal centrality in the Book of the New Sun points towards its importance what could be more Wolfian than burying the ending in the middle? Well, <laughs> that last bit about wolf bearing in the mid that's dead on i think yeah mm-hmm. yep. now uh on the first part as john says if the main thrust of the play was to reveal the coming uh, flood well 
it really doesn't really do that. <laughs> Although we can see it there in hindsight after Earth and the New Sun, what individual readers would have thought about those references if we could have got them all together before Earth was published in 1987. It, that's just not known. There was no Wolf listserv. The, the genie listserv, whose archives are lost to us, had yet to be born and to die. And of course, the Earth list was not even imaginable. But I just don't think there's enough emphatically to say Earth would be flooded from the new sun alone. I mean, there's enough there to stack a theory, Jenga, from bits and pieces. Yeah, but you know, not enough to arrive at that conclusion to the exclusion of all the competing theories. And even if you did point that out, wouldn't someone, you know, have asked, well, if that's true, what then? <laughs> what would that prove? What would that matter? Yeah, well, I have to say I tend to disagree for a few reasons that I do think there's certain flood imagery that comes up in the play that is pretty dead on. Um, and then also some other references that happen in, in some of Severian's dreams. That we oh, the, the dreams. Yes, yes, yes. If you know what that means. Yeah. Right, right. But I think there's enough to suggest that at least there's, there's something about wiping the slate clean that is hinted at enough times, uh, especially once you get the green man and you try to try to, to mm -hmm. sort of figure out what he is. I think there is now I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying definitely, but, but that's one thing I'm working towards is, is trying to, to. Well, one nice thing about knowing that the flood emphatically will come is that you can look at things like the play or the little, these obscure reference. I think they're pretty obscure, really. Yeah. But you look at these references and say, oh, yeah, yeah, it was always there. Mm -hmm. It was always there. And mm -hmm. then you have to, therefore, you know, jump to the other conclusions. What else is in there yeah. that is just incredibly vague, but yeah. intention and, and never got elaborated in any obvious way in Earth of the New Sun? And that that's, of course, like, that's the... That's the, the point of argument, whether Wolf left anything on the table. Yeah. Let's see. Also on Facebook, Matt Puzz like says, I've just made my first foray into Book of the Long Sun. And I must say, it's been Ooh. some time since I've reread Book of the New Sun. And this podcast has transformed something in me. It's made me a different reader in a good way, especially when reading fiction and especially when reading Wolf. I've read the first chapter three times. I should finish the series by about the time you fellas start the Book of Long Sun podcast. May the Moira favor us all. <laughs> okay. So I have to say this, I think I said it on there. I'm pretty sure I did, but this touched me um, uh -huh. because the one thing I always try in all my literature classes is just to get people to focus on reading closely, which means rereading, which means going back and thinking about it and, and reading again to test out ideas and in a lot of ways doing exactly what we're doing here. Um, students have occasionally come up to me and, and said that, but, but I said on there that, you know, if you're an English teacher for somebody <laughs> to say that it literally does bring a tear to your eye because it's kind of like, you heard me. <laughs> so, I mean, but no, that's honestly, that's great. Like that, that's so cool that it actually makes you want to go reread things. Um, and, you know, 
become like I even like I taught back in high school, become a more active reader (laughs) than a passive one. But that's I mean, that's cool. Like the fact that we can who knows? I mean, there is that part of me that, you know, went into teaching for idealistic reasons. And it's still part of me here that's like, maybe if we can have people become even more subtle readers of everything and not just wolf, (laughs) then that's awesome. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, thanks for saying that just because it, it really is cool. You know, we get so much mundane, uh, literature because people are satisfied with it. Right. If there was more people who were saying, well, I want to look at this really close. I want to see that you put in some work into this. Uh, we have more writers who would respond to that. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I always tell like whenever I teach Shakespeare, it's one thing I always say is like part of the reason the language is so dense and it was poetry was because they kind of really wanted you to come back time Mm -hmm. and again and to listen again and say, ah, there was, you know, there's no way one listen, especially just a casual audience member who's, you know, down in the pits and elbowing with everybody else. They're not going to catch every word the first time. It's not that they were just these magical readers who did that. The point was that it was something that would sustain you. And that if you came back and saw this play time and time and time again, you'd find new things every time, or you'd see it a different way because you, you now knew what that part of the soliloquy was referring to later on in the the play and stuff like that. And that's, that was normal. People expected poetry to be read multiple times. Like you didn't just, that's one reason why I think people are frustrated with poetry today because they're like i read it but i didn't get it it's like nobody gets it the first time the point the points to chew on it a little bit and to think about it but we don't necessarily think that way so much but the fact that wolf i think and i think we all think intentionally wrote in a way that even if it's just at the sort of puzzle level forced you to go back and read things and look for clues and whatnot at the same time you're gonna go back and do all Mm -hmm. that sort of more thematic or or looking for resonances and allusions and metaphors just to see how the thing is all woven together and how you get different layers of meaning and all that. So, yeah. Yeah, awesome. yeah. Um, yeah, now I'm thinking of, you know, Shakespeare's plays going on and, and, and the audience standing around, you know, saying the lines of all the characters along with them like they're at yeah. a concert. Mm-hmm. So I just say, oh, oh, so Matt has an interpretation of the play. He says... Uh, James expressed some consternation, let's say, with the naked, bejeweled character and why that may be considered seductive. Um, look, I believe me, Puzz, I am well aware of the appeal of naked, busty women in metal bikinis and <laughs> other brassy outfits. Uh, I was just wondering whether you know the jewelry could tie Jahi to anyone specifically in the book of the new sun. I, I think you and Mark settled on the possibility that it could just refer to Jolinta's clamor, right? Could be. He says, meanwhile, all I could think of was Kate Winslet's character Rose from Titanic. I want you to draw me like one of your French girls, Severian, wearing this and only this. This he may have hit a bit <laughs> different without uh, La Cour de la Mure, eh? So, yeah. Well done, Puzz. Let's see. Goon Hands on Reddit. He says, uh, we have to be careful of assigning a one-to-one relationship with the characters of the play and the characters of the book. And I believe it is equally valid to assign Nod to Baldanders or to the Megatherians, depending on the context. Both have similar drives and motivations, and the context gives meaning. I, 
Uh, I certainly agree with that. Uh, he says, along those lines, and to James's point, Jahi's motivation and activation in the play can be associated with all the seductress archetypes in the book. Agia, Jaterna, Jalinta, and even Jolly. That's a reference to the book of the short sun. I sometimes question whether we can add Dorcas to this list. I actually, uh, you know, Craig, I actually agree with this a lot. I, I sort of think that it might surprise some people. It's just the thing that bugs me looking at the symbol is Jahi and deriving from her no more than an archetype, which is, that's just a number, another symbol, right? Maybe. I mean, I keep going back to, you know, symbols make us. And yeah. so symbols are powerful things that in Wolf, they're not just powerful in the sense of like giving you an ideal to live up to. They may actually turn you into things you totally didn't expect. Right. Mm. I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about, you know, I took Vodalus's coin and it turned me into what I am, even though he's no longer a follower of Vodalus at all. He becomes a kind of soldier in a totally different fight. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so so they're they're tricksy things. <laughs> Same for the archetypes. Like if you know to say like to say that she's an archetype um, can then suggest all kinds of things that even characters who you might think of as sort of negative archetypes like Jalenta, it can help you maybe understand a little bit more about why he does pity her in the end yeah. because just like Jai is kind of you know, maybe misled and, and following the wrong ideals, you know, Jalint is there too. So it's not just that she's a, a succubus, but actually that, you know, it's, it's something else. So yeah, so there, there's a, there's a lot to it. Well, yeah, I, I, look, I get, it. I mean, no one should doubt that I, uh, that I get his point being someone who claims that Odillo is Valeria, but so <laughs> I, I, I get that. I honestly, I do get your point. Uh, but I do. Uh, I'm going to put a pin here because I want to circle back to this conversation about characters representing more than one single character and symbols mm -hmm. that represent archetypes. I, I want to give everyone else their say here first. So back to Goon Hands. He says, um, one of the most important things I got out of the play is acted out in those opening scenes. They are confirmation, the presence of God's will in all these machinations. Zadkiel and his people is not really speaking for the increate, even though they believe that they are performing the increate's will. In other words, the story is not just a manipulation of the fourth dimensional beings by fifth dimensional beings. God's hand is at work. That the increate works from within the schemes of the players and that the increate works through the players. Uh, Craig, this reminds me of something you and Mike Benowitz have argued that this, you know, the book of the new sun is an anti-materialist text <laughs> that God is nowhere to be seen. And yet his handiwork is everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. I kind of like yeah. that yeah. for obvious reasons. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Christopher Taylor answered to that saying, regarding that bit from goon hands that Zach Hill's not really speaking for the increate, even though they believe they're performing the increase. Will he says, conversely, this could be seen as playing into another long-running debate, whether the Hyros are actually good, mm -hmm. uh, to which Goodhands admitted he struggled with that. Um, Stephen Frug. And I can do the Frug. Has finally caught up with us. 
He's not ready to commit too much until we finish the play, but he still has a lot of thoughts. Like everyone else, Stephen prefers yours and Mark's take on the play. He says, you know, superb and is just right indeed for the play. I think it's the only choice. <laughs> At two, Stephen. At two. <laughs> he says, uh, for all that I love James's crazy theories, it's fun to remember that the second and third types of meaning get equal billing in this book. Point taken. And he also likes your hint that there are many styles of allegory, and I sense he'd like you to do a scholarly essay on it. So there's a new <laughs> project for you. I did point out, I sent him a couple suggestions to places where I got that, but <laughs> probably the one that people might think is most fun, there's a book by a scholar named Maureen Quilligan, and it's just called The Language of Allegory. Huh? She develops that idea in about allegories being really slippery kind of difficult to nail down things rather than the sort of simple pilgrim's progress. This equals this. And then this, mm -hmm. this equals this. And, you know, you decoded it, but yep. Maureen Quilligan language of allegory is, is a good one. Yeah. Um, uh, Stephen says, goes on to praise you. He says the slippery polyvalent nature of allegory that Craig paints is a much more interesting phenomena. Craig, you did not spare us your longer lecture on allegory. You denied us your longer <laughs> lecture on <laughs> allegory. No, even more. You robbed us of your longer <laughs> lecture on allegory. It's like the sun said to the moon, I'll spare you my light. Surely the moon would reply, it is only by the sun's light that it shines at all. <laughs> That's, yeah, very kind, but <laughs> Maureen Quilligan probably does a better job. Than <laughs> Well, he has an interesting angle on the Jolenta chapter. One thing I was amazed not to hear anyone mention, maybe it's so obvious it goes without saying, is that I've always seen the garden as Bosch's garden of earthly delights. Anyway, I was having a look at it on Wikipedia, and I could swear there's a Ninafar boat towards the top right of the corner. Hmm. Hmm. I think he has a good point. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. I'm going to go look at it right now. That's kind of cool. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, you see, it certainly has the, the color palette right, right? Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. Yeah. <laughs> I Also, I noted that Genesis is named after the first words in the book. And Stephen reminds <laughs> us that most of the books of the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew are called either by their first word or the first major word, avoiding particles and so forth. So Exodus is called Shmat, names. Uh, Leviticus is Valkyra, called, etc. I, let's see. Also, I shared speculation that the word ne Nephilim shares a root with fall, and so it can be associated with fallen angels. And Stephen notes that the legend of fallen angels is a Christian one and one that predates the writing of Genesis, uh, Breshit, <laughs> as he says. Genesis is the uh, is the Goy name. Mm -hmm. He says, I think that echo is put there by Christians reading backwards. Although I grant this is how nearly all Christian readings look to a Jew. <laughs> I, you know, that's, that's probably true about reading backwards. But you know, you know, who cares? I, I think Wolf is inclined to read words backwards. I mean, what's a pun if not reading a word etymology backwards? <laughs> and additionally, you know, sometimes... The Talmud reads the associations backwards, right? I, I'm really inclined to read potential illusions as uh, uh, playing from all sorts of directions. And this is off topic, but Stephen has got me 
on a subject I really like. The idea of fallen angels is not merely Christian. I mean, from the King James Version, Isaiah 14, 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? So yeah, uh, son of the morning, Lucifer is the planet Venus, and perhaps a metaphor to the death of a Babylonian king. But you know, speaking of reading it backwards, it might be an allusion to a Canaanite myth about two gods who fell from heaven as a result of a rebellion, and the association with the devil and Lucifer. Uh, it's been argued by scholars it goes back to first century Judaism. Even the first translator of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, Aquila of Sinope, AD 130. Did I say it was an AD 30? It's an AD 30. He derived Hebrew word for the morning star from the verb meaning to lament. And this was used as the name of a particular angel who lamented the loss of his former beauty. And of course, all the founders of the Christian sect were first century Jews. So if Christians favored first and second century etymologies, I don't know. I'm willing to forgive that. And yeah, to take Stephen's point the other way around, second century Christians tended to see all those old stories and scriptures and foreign myths as mankind or the devil himself looking forward. And to bring this back around, I think Wolf does look at myths and literature and the Bible in that sort of twisted, turned around, reverse cause and effect way. Uh, does that mean Wolf is doing it here? Mm, no, <laughs> but he might. I'm trying to make this work. And if you and, and Mark can argue that, you know, this is a metaphor for a metaphor or moral, and you definitely can, because I haven't managed to put this together in a meaningful narrative, meaningful to me anyway, then I'm going to, you know, play with various, sometimes spurious etymologies of these words to maybe stumble on what Wolf was getting at. So I take Stephen's point, but from the point of view of an autodidact, Catholic convert, I think the association with Nephilim and fallen angels is, well, it's reasonable to suppose he could have made that association. Really, it's not a bad one, really. Mm-hmm. Still, you know, Stephen, your points in this are, as always, very informative and pointed, and I really look forward to them. So thanks for the excuse to go off. Well, I'm actually curious to know more, like, I just kind of want to know in general, like, what does Stephen find in terms of other more Jewish traditions. I mean, especially once we get Bria and Yessa named yeah. in Earth of the New Sun, that's when we're in the Jewish Kabbalah or Kabbalah. Exactly. I'm yeah, not yeah. Sure. And I've always seen those two terms, at least. I'm like, it's got to be ripe for more. There's got to be other stuff that, that Wolf had stuck in there in some way. So, Did you ever um, read that uh, uh, book on Gnosticism that Wolf had recommended? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anything on Kabbalah in there? Uh, you know, I don't remember. It's been oh. such a long time, but I'll go look. I mean, it makes sense. It's mm-hmm. very, it's very Gnostic in its own way, right? Mm-hmm. In other ways, it's not. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. On Twitter, uh, ending bigly has got to our shadow the torture summary episode. Now he's ready to have some thoughts. One on the question of whether Hildegrin could be a robot. We were in agreement that there might be something there, but what difference does it make? And ending bigly says, Hildegrin dies when Severian gets too close to himself and something explodes. He's not convinced that Severian and Nepopunchal would cause an explosion, but he says the death of a robot, on the other hand, is exactly the kind of thing that would cause an explosion. Hmm. More to think about about the robot Hildegrin. Yeah. 
On the issue of what happened at the riot in Padilla's Gate, you and I seem to have agreed that Haythor was the cause, although that is certainly not canon, and Severian never seems to have come to that conclusion. Uh, he only has other initiating causes that he repeatedly references. So I summed it up to say, Wolf isn't playing fair. But Ending Bigley says, well, the chapter is named Haythor, so maybe he did figure it out. Or if he didn't figure it out, then perhaps Severian's manuscript doesn't name the chapters, and that's Wolf's doing. Hmm. Yeah. Could be. Three. Ending Bigley thinks the dream in chapter four, where Triskley comes to Severian and speaks to him in a dream, could be the most, quote, the most, but definitely not the only clue that Triskley is an Alzabo. He thinks this theory requires that the Alzabo have variations in appearance according to you know, variations between different species of wolves, and that in the few occasions where Severian describes Triskley as a dog, he means it in a more generic sense, rather than strictly meaning canine. Or maybe Severian is just describing Triskley as he understood him at the time, before he'd actually encountered an Alzabo. He says, quote, it has the benefit of flushing out Alzabos beyond their one depiction in sword. That's an interesting idea. That's a very cool. interesting idea. I don't think I've seen that before. Yeah. I don't think I've come across the idea that Triskley was a was an Alzabo. And that makes the fact then that Triskley comes back with Malrubius even more interesting. Yeah, I guess in a lot of ways, yeah. Hmm. That's good. That's hmm, that's something to choose. Maybe. On. Yeah. Uh number four, he has another theory that he describes as more wild speculation than others, which is that Jonas uses the mirrors to go back in time in order to become the man that Jolinta desires. I agree with that one, I think. And who is the man she desires? Dr. Talos. <laughs> he notes that Dr. Talos is artificial. In short, ending bigly postulates that Dr. Talos is made of Jonas' parts by Baldanders, who obviously made him from ancient parts. And he says, obviously, Baldanders would have reprogrammed Jonas. And then Jonas's Talos sees how the sausage is made with Jolinta and Italy loses all interest in her. And this explains why Talos would have conflicting motivations to play, etc., even though he was created by Baldanders. Yeah. That's a host no. of good curiosis earthuses there. So. That really is. Uh, yeah. I, I don't like that one, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be, that's one for the earth list. Still, I mean, I don't know. For a lot of aesthetic reasons, I'm, I don't like that one, but um, that doesn't. Th th there's a lot of things Wolf actually wrote that I didn't like, so <laughs> I didn't like the way it that, I like the way he told it. I just didn't like. I wouldn't have told that story. He sums it all up with, uh, "That's it for me. Loving the podcast. Can't wait to dig into Claw. Keep up the good work. Thanks, ending bigly. And our discussion of your comment is waiting for you when you get here. <laughs> yeah, I am curious now about Talus as Jonas. <laughs> I don't like that's that one. I don't like that. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't fit with my sense of either character. Yeah, I don't think. But I am yeah. curious. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Cool. Uh, so, hey, let's move on, shall we, Craig? I, look, I don't think I'm doing my credibility any favors by pushing with my insistence for this play to have a more literal, explanatory purpose than you and Mark do. And yet, man. Someone has to be the skeptic, and it might as well be the guy who is actually skeptical. And that's me. <laughs> so, you know, I've been looking for an opportunity to explain myself, and this is a good one. So, Goon Hands, you know, thanks for your little note, and please indulge me as I inject an inside. Craig, I realize that these symbolic characters change over time, 
And when we get to the scene with the autark and the prophet, it's going to be really a lot clearer. And yet there's a possibility that there's meaning in who is chosen to play what role or what are the other roles that they play. And that if Baldanders is playing a megatherian, well, you know, what purpose is there in that? So there is potential that having him play a statue is also connected, but not necessarily. The thing about symbols and Craig, this is an argument that I've had many times with Mark. I don't know if I've ever said this on mic. The thing about symbols is that they're like words. And in fact, words are symbols. And yet they mean different things depending on the context, as so many people have said here in these comments. So yeah, these symbolic characters are like that. And it's not just the symbolic characters. And in my opinion, which is not canon, as I've asserted many times, you know, Thecla is in a way Severian's mother and also his sister, depending on how you look at it. And the Autark is Severian's mentor, his enemy, and his, you know, his his mother. And Ordillo is the servant of the Autark and Severian's sister. And Dorcas is Severian's lover and his grandmother. And by the way, Craig, is it possible that Dorcas had Severian's child? Oh, we were talking a lot about the meaning of all that son talk in this last mm-hmm. episode. But never mind. Stop trying to distract me, Craig. The thing <laughs> is that I do understand the mutability of symbols. And my problem is that when we get no further into interpreting their meaning beyond, you know, just finding what feels like more symbols. And I that's I, I can see why you would you probably you and Mark would probably consider that to be unfair. <laughs> and, and it's only partially unfair, though. Mantis argued that the lost book of the new sun is just an accretion, a, a nearly random accretion of various ancient texts. And his interpretation is supported a little bit by the chrasmological writings in the book of the long sun in, in the same book universe, which are, you know, are, they're just that. And yet in this episode, I think we're actually coming to an example that typifies my point. There's the Contessa Carina, and there's a maid, and we, we've seen enigmatic maid in this book already, and we're going to eventually discover Carina in this book by a different form of the name. I want to fight for this literal meaning that this play hints at, just as it hints at the coming flood. The fact that this play does hint at an actual, literal event, shouldn't that be justification that maybe there are others, right? If, if we can agree that Wolf put... In the play, occulted hints to a specific event, not otherwise clearly spelled out in the Book of the New Sun, then perhaps there are other specific events, timelines, backstories that could be you know, derived from this play if we just step back and perhaps take some comments in, you know, in asides very literally. So... That is my case oh, yeah. for me. <laughs> and I don't I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I mean, I think you can definitely have both going at the same time. Um, just like Wolf always has, you know, different you know, one thing in the plot can actually hint at two different things. Yeah, he's juggling a lot of chainsaws in yeah. this book. Right? So yeah, I don't I don't I'm not discounting it, even though I've been definitely pushing the the one reading. I think I do that more for the sense of wanting to just make sense of the play on its own mm-hmm. or just like, okay, what, what does this mean? Period. Like just even as a sort of, yeah. just to, just to make sense of the chaos. Um, but yeah, there's certainly absolutely no reason that any of those other games could be going on at the same time. 
Yeah. But I have a bad feeling I'm going to be a broken man by this time this comes <laughs> up. I think that you and Mark are going to rule the day. <laughs> you guys are going to actually come away with something to take away from this play, and I'm going to be, but I don't get it. <laughs> but the book will keep going, just yeah. like the story continues after the Brown Book stories, too. Yeah, that's so. true. That's true. It's still on the shelf to read again. So. one new master patron since last time so we've got to say thank you and here's your musical tag to Liam Waters and the river bank talks of the waters of March remember that all the Patreon support is going towards helping us set up Shadow of the Con at Worldcon coming up here very soon in September we're less than two months away we're trying to get all that information organized and we'll get everything out as quickly as we can should have confirmation of when our actual official panel is going to be very very soon hopefully within the next week and then we'll be able to actually schedule things on the weekend and one tiny teaser I can give you is that we are going to have somebody from another podcast show up there, another Wolf podcast. I can't officially say which one yet because it's not 100% confirmed, but if you're kind of tired of me and James and you might want to meet one of the other guys, if that's enough to draw you up there, then please. So keep your eye out on social media. We'll be putting that information out as soon as we possibly can. And in the meantime, thank you to everyone at Patreon for helping out, supporting us, making this possible, getting us literally across the country and getting us to help set up a hotel room. Thank you all so much. Patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. Also, we do have one fun little thing coming up that this is not part of the Evergreen podcast. This is only good for the next few days. But <laughs> uh, if you're listening to this in the day or so after it comes out, we are planning on doing a Reddit AMA on Wednesday. Yeah, that's the idea. So if you want to come in, actually, I would say not just if you want to, but if you wouldn't mind coming in <laughs> and asking something just so it looks uh, active. That yeah, it, cool. It's in the Gene Wolf uh, subreddit. Yes. So yes. graciously invited us. So and I don't know. I don't know what kind of questions we have. We've had, we've just finished our 100th episode and that's pretty cool, right? Yep. Yep. Not a hundredth chapter episode, but, but a hundredth thing, including the bonuses and the interviews and whatnot. I don't know when the actual hundredth chapter. It's somewhere, yeah, in, somewhere in there, but, but yeah. So anyway, Wednesday and you know, if you want to ask about anything else, any other wolf stuff and not just new sun, I be happy to ramble on about that too <laughs> yeah. yeah we can pretend to be authoritative yeah. on that yeah. just like everything else and if you ask me about any of the short stories that i don't remember that i've read even though i know i have read everything i just have a bad memory <laughs> compared to others, then i'll definitely make up something creative <laughs> i have a perfect memory but i sometimes forget yeah. so <laughs> yep. cool but yeah wednesday reddit ama in the main gene wolf subreddit yeah definitely Dr. Talos's play, part three. Enter the Contessa and her maid. Okay, so up until now, we've been dealing with characters that are archetypes and legendary characters or partially conflated with them. From this point on, I think we are going to be introduced to unique characters, and I think we are expected to associate them with actual persons in the story. But the events of the play begin to vastly diverge from any story in the book of the new sun and that's why i'm approaching them 
with a first Severian model. But I still think the existence of the play suggests that there are keys here that can be used to pry open the story. And I, I truly believe that this is possible to string these events into some kind of story that casts a shadow over Severian's life. And this is after all, all based on the lost book of the new sun. And in fact, I think that in the summary episode of shadow of the torture, I suspected that this is what the title of that volume meant. So Contessa has fairly regularly been associated with Catherine Severian's mother because her name is revealed to be Karina, which is a form of Catherine. However, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm dubious. And I'll tell you why because she has a maid. The term maid has been applied to only two people in this story, indirectly to Asia at the beginning of this volume when Severian is looking for her and he describes her and someone says that she looks like every country maid around here. And the other is the maid that participates in Severian's elevation ceremony as the figure of Holy Catherine. I personally feel quite confident that the maid there is Severian's mother who went by the name Kathy or Catherine, and when she was with Owen. So I think this maid is refers to her and thus Severian's biological mother. So what do we do with Contessa Karina? I got to admit, she's the one I have the most sort of questions about. And my initial thought was that she's like the exultants or the cacogens or the, the sort of the haughty, arrogant, humans who think they've got it all figured out but beyond that this is where this is where i want to hear what you guys have to say so well yeah we have karina showing up in earth of the new sun with her maid there and so like we do have a maid as you said in that scene where severian is elevated and so what if maybe the maid survives and somehow the mother doesn't Right. Like what if something happens there on the path of air that casts her back in time? Uh, but I don't like necessarily the circular notion of, of time, but she's important somehow. And Karina is a form of the name Catherine. I don't know exactly, but there's one other thing that's very important, but I'm not going to get into it until you talk about the saints that she calls out. because She's going to call out some saints in a minute here. Uh, yeah. uh, so I'm going to hold off on that, but it's about the maid there as well, Catherine with a K. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting, though, that yes, we have Karina, Catherine, and the maid in that elevation ceremony, and the idea of a son and motherhood, right? And like what the future's going to be. I think I think it's all related. Yes. So I think for a long time I had a trouble with this maid because I've always associated her with the maid in the uh, in the elevation ceremony. I've always associated that maid with Severian's mother. So, you know, this Contessa Karina made no sense. I, I admit, you know, that whole scene with the path uh, of air, I don't know exactly what it means, but I do agree that it is associated with these characters. However, I think I understand this scene, this relationship a lot better now, because I now understand the relationship of the Kaibits as clones of the Exultants and that the Exultants are themselves a line of clones and that Severian's mother, the maid, was a runaway Kaibit. I don't think that she was a runaway Pelerine. I, I don't think that makes any sense given everything we know about the Pelerines. But it does make sense that if a Kaibit who knows so much about the secrets of state and has no rights as a person in the Commonwealth 
were to run away, that would be a capital crime. So everything falls together. I understand. So the maid in this case, likely Severian's mother, or perhaps this is a similar relationship. Perhaps Catherine is the original of the Thekel line. I don't, I don't necessarily know that, but I do under, think I understand these, the relationship going on here. The, the, the Contessa Carina is the exultant of Severian's mother, Catherine, and as everyone knows who's been following this so far, I think Carina is the clone parent of the Thekla and false Thekla. And so, the maid I, is the doomed Kybit. I don't understand why you're assuming that Carina is the parent of Thekla and false Thekla at all, because she's in the future. I just I don't. Uh, well, this is <laughs> this is this is a story with a lot of time travel. Anything could be in the future. Yeah, but why? Why? Why would she be related to Thecla? Well, I will. For that, we're going to have to wait till we get to Earth of the New Sun okay. and decide what is happening at that okay. path of air. And there's and, and I know of at least two theories that I don't necessarily buy into, but are rather involved explanations of that path of air and that that's Severian's mother and that she's running off and she's hiding and into it through the, through the uh, corridors of time. Yeah. And that could very well be. Yeah. I just don't see the relationship to that. Glad. Welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah. And the only other thing I said is that when I read this, I assumed that there ought to be some kind of Thecla and Contessa connection, but I'm not exactly sure <laughs> just yeah. because of the role. So, all right, let's let's real quickly take a look at, at that name there. We already talked that Karina and Catherine kind of mean pretty much the same thing. But why are we so sure, given Severian's height, that that maid would have to be his mother rather than Karina? If some kind of time-bending property thing were going on where she somehow winds up in the past from the path of air or her baby is taken from the future, you know, assuming that there is some nonlinear aspect of time here, which is a pretty big assumption, but she seems to be associated with Catherine somehow through the meaning of her name there. Um, why the maid rather than the exultant woman? Um, I, off the top of my head, I cannot piece together all, all the steps that got me to that position. However, I will say um, the fact that she looks like, she looks like a pool of water in a wood, which as a, a listener also suggested, this suggests that, she looks like Severian. So Severian looks like a pool of water in a wood. She also she plays she plays the role of Catherine, and we find out that Severian's mother is Catherine. And I think the other thing was that that pool of water is a mirror. That was the, exactly, the idea. Yeah. Like he looks in that pool of water, which is a very kind of cool Wolfian way to say he's looking in a mirror. At least that's what that's that's what he had talked about. When he did. Okay. All right. Now, I, I'll say when it comes to this character, I don't necessarily immediately think of his mother. I think of Catherine, like because of Karina. Also, the other thing that immediately pops up is the one other exultant woman who's like a, who's like a, you know, any, any kind of aristocratic woman is Thecla. Right. And so immediately when Contessa and her maid pop in, I just like James said, I remember the maid. I think of Catherine. And then especially I think of Thecla. Wait, 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 wait. I have a second uh, a second thought here. So you said the only yeah. maid figures were Aegea. What about that lady getting the full or half boot at the very start? Was she a maid or what was she? Uh, I I can look it up, but I don't think she was actually used to, as a hand as a maid. She had another name for it. Here, who began upwrapping the mat? Half boots, no full boots. She's a maid servant. Maid servant. Okay. Yeah. 
So not well, not I obviously very similar, but not quite the same. I'm gonna say that this is pretty much equivalent to me. A maid servant of Thecla would be a maid. And that's what I was thinking too, because I do know that Thecla talks about having uh servants and so they that's just, and this is all just free associating at this point in my head. Yeah. You poor, 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 poor people. Don't you understand that Severian's mother is a kybit and she was a kybit of Thecla's clone mother and that Thecla is his mother biologically and the maid is his mother and she, and so therefore Catherine is his mother don't you know it all comes together? Well, I don't know. I don't know that I can follow you with with Karina being the mother of Thecla. I, I don't know how to do something with that when she does appear in Earth of the New Sun in the future. Uh, but I just I can't wrap my mind around how to make her related to Thecla in that way. Besides the, the the appearance of the maid, you know, and maybe a little bit of cruelty, which we'll get into a little bit later as well. And also the recognition that Severian gets there. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll maybe come back to this. But I think maybe what you should do is actually get into what happens when she appears and yes, sort of see what she starts doing and how she starts acting. And so, Okay. Um, so, so the Contessa says, my sovereign Lord, what do you do here? As she's talking to the autarch, uh, Messia says, I am at prayer, daughter. Take off your shoes at least, for this is holy ground. So Messia, when she says, my sovereign Lord, he presumes she's talking to him. Is that right? I think so. Um, unless, I mean, that could go either way, right? She could she could be talking, obviously, to the autarch, and he thinks that, yeah, she means him, or he's just going to address her because he's the father of all things and he should handle the women's behavior or something like that. Yeah. There's a cool switch there. Yeah. It's like suddenly he became the authority figure there. I'm at prayer daughter. I, yeah. Uh-huh. I think she does. Like he thinks he's in the autarch's position and the autarch is in God's position. And it's kind yeah. of, it's an interesting little, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. But it's also cool. It's, it's similar to that, you know, the person behind you standing thing where one person means one character and somebody else may mean somebody else or somebody and, misunderstands. And this is Severian, playing that so when he answers you know i'm a prayer daughter as the sovereign lord i mean he's going to be the autarch someday so yeah. it's pretty cool because then the contessa does clarify and it's clear that no she was talking to the autarch and not him but yeah because the next thing she goes is leash who is this fool and then he <laughs> then the autarch answers her but yeah. right yeah and also now uh, this thing about holy ground this is mm-hmm. also an allusion to moses in front of the burning bush talking to god essentially but through an angel and exodus 3 5 take off your sandals for the place where you are standing as holy ground and of course most importantly it's a reference to the moment when severian finds the thorn and realizes it's identical to the thorn that is the claw and he realizes that the ground he's staying on is holy because all the ground is holy but i want to take it one more step father aniri's botanical garden the sand garden uh, i've come become convinced that that room is not a desert it's the bottom of the ocean because Severian refers to the ocean bottom where he encountered the Undines in his dream in Baldander's bed, he calls that a sand garden. So just as the purpose of the Garden of Endless Sleep is to allow the Autark to talk to the Kameyan on the other side of the world, the purpose of the sand garden is for the Autark to negotiate with the Megatherians, or at least with Abia. And this location where Severian is entrapped is, I think, a location on the shore of where, I think we all agree with that, the shore of where he's going to encounter the thorn. 
Okay, so there's one thing I want to I want to interject here, James, is that it's on the beach there, kind of right, but it's not underwater. But it will be. It will be because those dreams are prophetic. You see, everything's going to flood, and so that's more like a prophetic dream that hey, it's it's a sand garden because it's going to be submerged someday, but it's not yet. And so I think that just tells the future basically. The sand garden there will be someday submerged as almost everything will be. So like, that's just, Hey, and yes, I do agree. It's where he's going to encounter the thorn. And that's the reason that he kind of got temporally stuck there when he was there with the Gia. Yeah. Although I got to say that, say, I don't a hundred percent understand why he gets stuck there instead of other, there are many places he encounters that are going to happen. Well, no, he has he has the, the thorn in the claw, and the thorn is on the bush. The same thorn, so they interact with each other, and like that creates that temporal vortex there, almost like Apu Punchau calling to him the Vivimancer from the past. It's the same kind of thing where time is uh, violated a little bit from his point of view, mm. and so the the thorn and the claw are the same thing, and they come into contact with each other there. Yes, that's very possible. I will. Yeah. I will allow it. That's okay. a good. That's also a very good kind of like. You know, it looks like a weird, mysterious thing, but it's actually a, you know, sort of sci-fi kind of explanation for why, why this stuff is going on. So I like that. But, um, so, but here though, in, in the play, um, this is the first time Messia has seemed to say that, that wherever they are is holy ground. So, and this is one thing I wasn't sure before. Do Messia and Messian think they're still in the Garden of Eden? Yes. Um, yes. Okay. They haven't been cast out. Yeah. Because that's that's what I was wondering, too, because Nod talks about, you know, East of Eden and things like that. So so or because what I was wondering was, is he saying this is holy ground because they're in the Garden of Eden or is it holy ground because the autark is here? Um, well, no, and, it's not because the autark is there. It's because it's it's God's world, the Neoplatonic right. world, where everything is actually holy ground uh, is kind of perceived there. The new earth is going to be purified, right? That's right. one of the themes there. So wherever they are, it's going to be holy ground, but it's not because the autark is there. Definitely not. Or because he's praying there. Right. I just didn't know if in, in Meshia's sort of perspective at this yeah. point, too. Yeah. So, and, and that's true, too, because you're, you're right. He says, I am at prayer. So right. like he's in this moment of praying, and so he's he's aware of it. Um, and yeah, take off your shoes at least. But yeah, so it's absolutely sort of bringing up all those issues of what Severian realizes later. Why is he bringing that up to the Contessa? Like, why is she the one who somehow needs to be reminded, oh, this is all holy ground and you're doing something wrong and you need to be corrected? You know what? I mean, maybe that is kind of a more of a callback to Thecla's position inside Severian there, where they kind of come to that realization. That's a very interesting question, but she might just be a stand-in for the exaltants, those characters that think they're better than everybody else, and they need to be reminded that they're not, right? Mm. That, that God yeah. still exists. So this could be a social commentary as well, where all of these different figures, they're a stand-in for the classes that they're a part of. They represent them in a way. And that could be too, because then she ignores it, right? Because then the yeah. exultants never see it, and she's just like, "Whatever, who is this fool?" Right? Y- yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so one other thing is, uh, what Severian says is entrapped there. He says, "I felt I belong there, that I was to meet someone, and that certain woman was there nearby, but concealed from sight." And that's Thecla, we presume. But what if that certain woman that he felt was nearby wasn't exactly Thecla? Uh, he doesn't say, I felt Thecla was there concealed from sight, which is, is something that would still have made sense to a first-time reader, given how much Severian ha- is already talking about her. What if this part of the play refers to this moment in the play 
already in Severian's memory from his previous iteration. What if, what if, what if, like everything else, I, you know, I don't know what to do with it. All right. So I kind of do know what to do with this scene. And we've actually talked about this when I came on with the Jungle Hut chapter, where I said, hey, you know who's waiting for him around the corner? He's going to meet Dorcas. You know, he's going to resurrect her. She's going to come back from the dead. His familial line is there. It's an encounter with a family line. And in that ending at Citadel of the Autarch, when he's there on the beach, he's going to go see Dorcas again. She is the next woman that he runs into. So we really do get the sense that um, Dorcas is that woman for this. And what is she? She's the past. She's something that's cut off. She is a, a remnant and it can't continue. His sexual encounters with her, they can't lead anywhere into the future. It's only looking into the past there. So I think they're symbolic as well. And that this moment too, this moment here where that is evoked as kind of a familial thing is important as well. So I guess we should probably leave that behind for now and talk about how the Contessa feels about Meshia. I kind of like that. I kind of like that about the, that there was someone he was to, had to meet and that it was Dorcas. I think that makes, um, that's very appealing. I'm glad. <laughs> okay. So, so the Contessa then says, Liege, who is this fool? A madman I found wondering with two women as mad as he. Then they outnumber us, unless my maid be sane. Maid says, your grace. Contessa Karina suggests here that her maid is possibly insane. But I think that is intended as a knock against the Contessa herself. Okay, so can you expand just a little bit on that, James? Do you mean that the Contessa is saying that she could be insane? Or do you mean that she's just cruel and mean and this this yeah, comment? Supposed to it, we're, we're supposed to think less of her but it it, it yeah. is interesting that the contessa actually believes or suggests that it's credible that her maid is insane well she does give a reason here yeah she's she says she goes on she says which i doubt in other words that she was saying this afternoon she laid out a purple stole with my green capote i was to look like a post decked with morning glories it would seem yeah, so I mean, that's what I mean but, is that the make the Contessa is obviously an exultant, and she thinks she's crazy because you know she doesn't do follow all of the obvious rules. She put purple and green right. together. <laughs> yeah. Is there any meaning to purple and green? That is a blue and green. That's a blue and green again. <laughs> all right. Yeah, but it does make here the Contessa is just like this. This part makes her seem just cruel. Right. Like yeah. there's 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 very little sort of hidden nobility or anything here. She's just superficial. She's cruel. She's obviously she's never going to be moved by Messia saying this is holy ground. She's not going to ask, why would you say that or anything like that? So right. she cares um, how her dress looks. Yeah. Which fits a lot with what we know about how the Chatelaines function and a lot of Thecla's flashbacks are to similar kinds of things. Like I remembered I was wearing this kind of dress and. The big thing is how they would go and whip people in the antechamber, and that was just their fun. So it's getting us like that. That's why, to me, right here at this point, the Contessa seems a whole lot like Thecla and the Exultants. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. A yes, little bit yes. more like the class rather than which. Then that's why I get more confused later when it turns out her name is connected to Catherine. Ah, uh, it's so. all coming together though. All right, so let's see. Uh, well. Get some stage direction. Meshia, who's been growing angrier as she speaks, strikes her, knocking her down. Unseen behind him, the autark flees. <laughs> okay, so Talos leaves running, 
Baldanders and Nod is silent in the background. It's just Severian, Dorcas, and Jalinta now. And, and Severian is, is actually becoming quite violent, right? And I think that this shows how violent the coming of the new sun is going to be, right? Humanity is going to war with its children, according to the green man. And here, those old social structures, they're going to be cast down. The exaltants are not going to have a happy ending. They're not going to have the same kind of existence in Ushas that they had before. So I think this symbolizes that change and how violent it actually is going to be. Hmm. The question I have is, and this maybe is sort of a larger question, but I've always wondered about the exultants being taller, which means that they're either not really from earth or that not that they're necessarily part alien or something, but they, even if it's just that they've lived on other worlds and so they have, you know, adapted to different gravities or something like that. But then to have them sort of be presented here, almost like the, the wayward daughters or the, the rebellious daughters that they're not quite as human in some way. I don't know. Um, I don't necessarily draw that conclusion from this. I just think that as the upper class here, they're they're no longer um, invested in middle class humanity, the problems of of lower people. Right. They just Mm. see superficial things like like many, you know, with wealth and affluence would be. But that time of affluence has come to an end. Yeah. Yeah. That works. That works. So and then, of course, the autark flees. Right. Like he doesn't do anything to help her or to to actually save the world or do anything like that he just runs away right just runs he runs away in the face of messia's anger of the face of the first man's anger i i don't know i don't know what we're we're getting at here i I feel like there might be something but it's gone by me so messia says brat don't trifle with holy things when i am near or dare do anything but what i tell you so knocking down uh, the Contessa, it, it, I don't know. It, it, obviously, it's a co- potential confirmation that it is she who is his mother and she who is the maid in Severian's elevation. But I, I doubt that because the tone is at odds with uh, the Severian and the maid's relationship in the ceremony. You, know? you mean just because she gets beheaded by Severian symbolically? Well, yes. Yeah. But he is he's not he's not hostile to the to Catherine in the uh in right the, if anything he's, he's attracted he's, to her he's, he's servile actually yeah, to yeah. her and so that's why I think this is more symbolic of that class ascension and change that's coming yeah. rather than but but what holy thing is he talking about here is it actually her mention of morning glories a post decked with morning glories or is it just that she doesn't seem to respect the, the land around them and she's concerned with minor things instead like is there actually something holy that she desecrated in her speech there rather than in just her general behavior well his severian's prayer right yeah 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 now i can't remember we haven't been keeping a database of all the flowers james <laughs> so i'm like yeah, did yeah. morning glories come up before and i just i have a bad memory for tree types i don't recall that one yeah i'm pretty sure that uh Mantis has written some sort of article listing every single flower because <laughs> that sounds like something he would do. Yeah. So, but we do have the maid then starts to turn, and the maid is obviously more pious or something like that because she's the one who starts paying attention to Messia, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's what he's talking about. When he's ah, there you go. There's another sign that she that the maid is Severian's mother. He, it is quite possible he's actually the holy things he's referring to is the maid herself. Okay, but but in Earth of the New Sun, Severian has the strong reaction to the exultant 
like not the maid. He sees the exalt and he's like, I feel like this is something that has happened before when he sees her. And it's like to her that he responds to and not the maid. The, the issue, the fact that the, the maid doesn't look anything like Thecla has always kind of been an issue. But the, remember, the maid is actually much younger than either Thecla or her um, her clone. So I... Uh, Anyway, I don't. I don't know that I can nail anything down, but I do see a lot of confirmation in here of the direction we're going. But I wish I could tie in a specific message <laughs> that's being conveyed. And I'm not. And, and and you guys, it doesn't bother you guys. You are you're you don't you don't you don't expect anything like that, but I do. No, uh, I think the the message I see is more about the story of humanity, not Severian's mm-hmm. story. So that's that's what I'm getting. Yeah. Yeah. But um, and that's kind of what we get right here right we start to get a little bit of this now we're getting back to the sort of mythology that's getting set up in the play here because then meshia does come out and say i am the parent of the human race and you are my child yeah you are my child as she is well that's i don't know i see some more irony in that uh the, the maid does intercede for her she says i hope you'll forgive her and me we had heard you were dead <laughs> And there it's kind of like, that's again, I think that's confusing the Adam and Eve story and this new sort of Adam and yeah. Eve, this mess here, right? Because this right. is like, oh, we'd heard you were dead. In other words, we thought you were just old legends or that was right. something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Literally, but here's this thing coming back, which is a lot like the conciliator in some ways, right? I mean, the just something we thought had happened a long time ago. We had forgotten about or was an old myth or a legend, but here you are. Right. But then his answer to that is awesome. Yeah, he he says, uh, that requires no apology. Most are, after all, for I have come round again, as you see, to welcome the new dawn. Yeah, Zurian's going to get to, I can't remember if he's already discussed the fact or he's going to discuss the fact that, you know, most of any category are dead, right? Pretty sure that's in Citadel the Ashark, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's also just funny here how he says it. I don't know. I, I think it's funny. Maybe I'm just weird. But um, but yeah, he's like, most are. Most people are dead after all. Um, but then there's this suggestion right after he says that about the new dawn, right? Which is so in here, there's already sort of hinting towards resurrection, hinting towards some kind of rebirth. Right. Yeah. It's well, it's a, I don't know. It's another cycle, another cycle of Severians. So I, as I see it. Some stage direction now. So then stage direction with Nod. Speaking and moving after his long silence and immobility. We have come too early. A signal for me that this is a previous iteration, not our spherans. Uh Nod is looking for Meshia's son, remember? So they are too early, right? Well, James, they're too early because the new sun is about to arrive and that sun's not born. So this is before the end of Earth of the New Sun, but... All that is going to arrive eventually, so it, it's coming here. So they're just a little early. Well, who's his daughter that he wants to marry to the son? She she doesn't matter. She's another like sea creature or something, you know, like an undine or, or you know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. yeah, I think the point there is more about like what was it we had talked about, sort of how they're part of the beast. Like he talks about how they're they're part of the beast's family, or they used to live with the beasts when things were simpler, mm-hmm. um, but now they want some kind of humanity. So there's. It, which is an evolution story. Yeah, they want to be a part of the future of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's convergent evolution rather than divergent, where they come mm-hmm. back into what once was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which also is similar to Syriaca's story about this idea of humans who make machines and the machines come back and help humans 
evolve in a different way. Which is the story of the, the Hieroes and the Hierojules and the Hierogametes. That's right. exactly what right. they're doing, right? They evolve from them and then they come backwards to help them, meddling in their past. Yeah, and and exactly, and that's one thing I hadn't noticed when we talked about that before last time about how, yeah, the story Nod says is the same pattern as Syriac's story and it's the same with the Heroes and or the Hieroes and, and everything. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, especially as pointing he, he, at Nod and he says, a giant, a giant. And the Contessa says, and I don't know about the pronunciation here. Oh, Solange, Kinneberga. I'm here, your grace. Libby is here. So, yeah, she seems to be calling for her other maids. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe exultants don't have just one kaibit each. I suppose they'd be singularly important to the exultants since the Autark keeps them as hostages. So St. Solange, she died in 80 in France, ninth century. She was a shepherdess from a poor family, a horny nobleman in Poitiers, uh, saw how beautiful she was and tried to carry her away on his horse. She got away and he chased her and chopped off her head. Uh, the Catholics online website says the sources for her story are questionable. And to tell the truth, her story does seem to have a lot of features of Greek myth and other mythology. She's, you know, she's always depicted carrying her head. And St. Kynaburga, uh, she was the daughter of a pagan king of Mercia. She founded an abbey, and it would be notable if all three of these maids had been beheaded, but unfortunately, that's not the case. This maid is Libby. So St. Libby was beheaded in uh, 303 in Palmyra, uh, along with uh, St. Uh, Eutropia and St. Leonis. Three young virgins. Uh, Eutropia was 12 and was shot by archers. Leonis was Libby's sister, and she was burned at the stake. And Libby was, as I said, beheaded like Catherine. I guess, you know, their executioners were bored and wanted to try different execution methods for each little girl. Okay, so I think it's very significant that Solange and Libby are both beheaded here. And I want to call back to that when, when Severian first meets the maid that he knows is Catherine, he says, the first time I saw her, Gildas was the head of apprentices. This is going all the way mm -hmm. back to Shadow of the Torture. And I may have mentioned this before, but I think it's important to bring up again. Gildas is a saint from kind of the proto-Bluebeard story that we have. Uh, you know the story yeah. of Bluebeard, right? He keeps dead women, uh, kind of like his ex-wives, as soon as they get pregnant or whatever it is, in, in his basement. He has a key there, and he gives it to his next wife, and he says, don't open the door, you know? And so when they when they do open it, they find the dead women and it's their time. Well, originally, right, the bad guy in it, uh, the, the nobleman or whatever it was, he would kill his wife by beheading them as soon as they became pregnant. And the, the, the last wife became pregnant and she was beheaded. But Gildas reattached her head and resurrected her. So that maternity imagery being the reason that she's put to death, I think is so key. So I think that Wolf has really tied this with the beheadings and with the presence of Gildas there um, in that beheading scene where Severian meets that maid, whoever she is, and that, that that mythical story behind it is about the reattachment of a head because of a pregnancy. So I think that all of that coming together is important, even for this here. Oh, and I'll, by the way, I, I mentioned this before, but uh, in the St. Gilda's story, he first helps her escape through tunnels. Yes. 
Yes. So I like that. And that's cool. And one total side thing, but in the audiobook version, the later one, uh, but he pronounces those with German accents. And that kind of threw me for a loop because I was like, <laughs> I do everything with as Americanized an accent as I possibly can with as few syllables yeah. as I possibly can. <laughs> so Triskel, you know, like I don't bother Trisket, right? Like Triskel, mm-hmm. that's it, man. I'm not going to pronounce that E on the <laughs> end. I don't care. Even if my name is Armini, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Nod says, too early for the new sun by some time still. So this comes, and he says that after we get the saints' names popping up, which makes me wonder. I know we had come up with suggestions for what Nod is or alluding to, whether he's the beasts or or lower forms of humanity wanting to develop, or whether he's the Megatherians or something like that. But the idea of coming too early is that really significant or is that just kind of is there some significance to the idea that they haven't quite come here yet and that that things aren't quite ready like is there something in the story of Severian's world that the Megatherians are I don't know I mean the what I'm trying to get at is there is there anything that would suggest from that that like the Megatherians wouldn't be evil if they had come at a different time or we wouldn't see them as evil? No, because I think, you know, he does phase back into Baldanders and even as a statue into like what the Hieros, an imitation of the Hieros, right? Which is basically the Hierogamates and the Hierogiles or the Hierogiles, mm-hmm. I always call them, right? Yeah. So like, I don't necessarily think that this has much to do with the Megatherians. And it's almost like a statement of just, hey, the new sun hasn't come yet, right? Mm-hmm. Just like we are in this book. Here. Right. And we're still at this point where yeah, we're, we're waiting for it. for it. So I just think I don't think there's much that we need to read into it, no. really. Well, I'm, yeah. I well, I do, I've never let that stop me. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> only other thing before we, we do the only other thing I could think was that the fact that the Hyrodules do go back in time. That Yes. And they go back to before. Right. They keep going earlier and earlier. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The, Wow, that's interesting. That uh, Mark, you think that the Megatherians are moving backwards in time? No, 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 no. Nod is a statue. The statues are made in imitation of the Hieros. The Hierogametes and the Hierojules are imitations of the Hieros, basically. Okay, so he's. A, you, and your, your opinion is that he is not at this point a Megatherian. He not is, in this uh, scene anyway. Even though he's going to be like Baldanders later, I think sometimes he's a stand-in for an imitation of what the future holds, you know, like to some degree, and a memorial, too, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, oh. or many minutes, I guess. Cool. Well, I mean, it certainly is, is peculiar that anybody who, you know, walks the corridors of time would feel like they had come too early or too late. You, you, it's, it's, it's never too early or too late. It seems like an irrelevant uh, statement. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to move forward on this one. The green man has to look for a lot of times before he can save Severian. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> kept he's he's looking. Yeah. Yeah. I'm too early. to. Oh, I'm too late this time. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this is the next part's interesting because then the Contessa says, beginning to weep, the new sun is coming. We shall melt like dreams, uh, which, which I, is a cool line. But it's also now all of a sudden she's religious, but it means something horrible for her. Yeah. She, she's going to be left behind. Well, I do think this is a, a hint to the original readers that the new sun is going to destroy the world. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Right. They're going to be left like only a memory or a dream. Yeah. So, uh, Meshia, seeing that Nod intends no violence, he says, bad dreams, but it will be the best thing for you. You you understand that, don't you? Well, you know, 
Beshio. That's the way some people see it. Other people see it differently. So yeah, Contessa says, recovering a little. What I don't understand is how you, who suddenly seems so wise, could mistake the autark for the universal mind. The Contessa is singing my song, guys. <laughs> Ameshia doesn't seem to address this question at this point. Not obviously, anyway. Meshia, I know that you are my daughter in the old creation. You must be, since you are a human woman, and I have none in this. Ha, 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 guys. See there? Well, James, I don't think I, that means what you think it means. We'll see. <laughs> we'll, see. <laughs> well I, yeah, I think this is evidence of the importance of the chain of universes in this book. Also evident it, for that in the Louis... Uh, Jorge Luis Borges's uh, circular ruins is self-evidently, I think, influential. But you know, how is this an answer to her question? Um, right. So the way I see it, though, it it does work with what we're setting up here with sort of like two different beginnings. Because when yeah. he says, "You are my daughters of the old creation," in other words, all humans are the sons of Adam and Eve from the original creation, or however you want to put it. Um, and then he says, "You must be, since you are human women." That like that's we're doing Aristotelian logic. You belong to the category of human, so therefore yes. you are also my daughter. Um, but then he says, and I have had none in this, which will. means that there are no of the new people yet. There are no evolved humans yet. There's no Ushish people quite yet. Mm. So um, Mark does nod. Okay, I'll be nod, yes. His son will take my daughter to wife. It's an honor our family has done little to deserve. We're only humble people, the children of Gaia. But we will be exalted. Uh, so Gia is the personification of Earth, of the ground, of the underworld, and of you know the world. And the reference to Nod wishing to be exalted, that cannot be accidental. Well, yes, right. He does want to be, you know, included in that next level here. So here he says... Wait, 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 wait. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Remember, you just said that he was a statue. Has he switched over now? Okay, so... In, in many ways, I think that, yes, you know, some of him is Baldanders, and Baldanders plays the role of not at the end there. What was Baldanders trying to do? He was trying to elevate himself. He was trying to become something that was the future of humanity, but it, it winds up not being that, right? Uh, that, that, self, that self-development. We need to look at that scene at the end of Earth of the New Sun. Well, who, who, who's, who in this case would be Baldanders' daughter? Who would be a statue's daughter? Look. Look, 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 look. <laughs> yeah. That is so literal. That doesn't matter. It's it's the twining of the races that's important, right? The intermingling there. Um, so I don't I don't really think if if there's any character that would serve as the daughter, it would be like Jahi and the temptation there in the Undines, right? But but like really that's interesting. That is an interesting theory you've put. You've put but I'm not going to call it a theory. I'm just trying to say that if there's any character that would be that, but it's not. It's not her, right? So, I mean, I just think that you take it this scene a little too literally. I will. Well, I I can be get counted on to do that. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah I think when he says here, he's talking the, the whole point about having a daughter and she's going to marry into the human race is more about there will be a lineage of my type of people who will become more human and become better because they're going to be part of the the new mm. wishes thing and one thing too the way you could see that is look at the green man right if he says i am gaia then there's something yes. almost like nod saying i represent something about the physical earth or, or something about 
physical life. And um, and if Gaia or Gia is going to be recreated um, and meshed and merged with humanity, but that's exactly what the green man is because now he's a human who is even more integrated into something about, you know, the, the biological life of the planet and, and other things. And, and all the ways that we could talk about how maybe being green, he's less violent because he doesn't have to kill to eat so much or whatever. But, um, but point is there, it's like the green man is what would come of Nod and Nod is sort of representative of that bestial animal Gaia part in humanity. When Severian sees the green man's face, he describes it as the same aspect of a statue, right? The statue reflects the green man's face as well there. Like there's something about the, the statue's faces at the House Absolute that remind him of the green man. Mm. And this could be a little too metaphorical, but but the idea of a statue and then a statue coming to life, there is something about uh, physical reality, but physical reality being evolved to the point of become of having life as a sense like there's if you think of a split a split between like matter and spirit a living creature is some kind of like mere matter that's now been given extra divine form because it now isn't just you know it's not just mere matter by itself it's actually participating with some with a soul or with with something else so which is getting a whole lot more here to that mix of almost physical resurrection that he's talking about like the and this is one thing that i don't know that we've really talked about james and i much at all but the the sort of theology of what is going on in here there's a whole lot more about physical resurrection than the idea of being resurrected in a heaven or or your soul going on somewhere else it's there's all this it's very physical okay well i mean that's standard christian belief though right like it's like at the very end of eternity you're resurrected with the body as well Right with the body. That's, that's not that's not so. controversial or unusual. That's what I said. Like people who read this stuff, I mean, like that's just standard Christian theology, really. Yeah. Some there there are plenty of well, yeah, people yeah, yeah. But like I mean, it's standard Catholic theology, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, but so that's that's kind of the idea here too. I think all that's kind of wrapped up in this idea of two lineages: one that's more animal and physical, and one that's more human, and they're both going to be raised up even more. So the humans will be better, and the the bestial animal side will be better. Are you guys both rejecting then any uh, intentional association between Nod here and the exaltants? Yes, I reject. I do reject it. He just wants to be exalted and raised up. It, it has nothing to do with being an exaltant. And I think if anything, like I think he intentionally obviously uses that word there, but maybe especially after what we just talked about with the contestant. And she got knocked down. She got knocked down. So somebody has to take that vacuum's and place. And she got knocked down. It's almost ironic. It's even kind of like an ironic thing. Like these other people who thought they were exalted with their wealth and their human, mere worldly goods or whatever, um, that's not really exaltant. Right. Or, or that's exactly. not the true exalt. The true exaltant is going to be the green man or the Usha's people or, or whatever comes after. Um, so I think there is a sense there that I don't think he's saying Nod is an exultant, but I think what he's saying is that Nod is actually pointing to what the real exultants would be. And let's let's see what Nod says about what he's going to be here. Nod says, what will I be, Meshia? The father-in-law of your son? It may be, if you don't object, that someday my wife and I will visit our daughter on the same day you come to see him. You wouldn't refuse us, would you? A place at the table? We would sit on the floor, naturally. Meshia says, of course not. 
the dog does that already or will when we see him. <laughs> so that is that is uh, the dog will sit on the floor when not comes, you know, comes to visit uh, Meshia's son, whoever that is supposed to be. The dog is some kind of reference to Triskali. I think, but I don't know exactly what to do with it. The dog I do know what to do with it. I do know what to do with it, but we're going to come back to that in a minute. Okay, okay. Well, the dog sitting on the floor under the table is another pretty vague Christological reference. In, in Matthew 15 and in Mark 7, a woman described as a Canaanite by Matthew, a Syrophoenician by Mark, asked Jesus to come help her daughter who was demon-possessed. And, you know, she's descended from the ancient original inhabitants of the region. And if she were in this book, I suppose she'd be a Natakvin. But Jesus doesn't even respond to her. So the disciples come up and say, send this woman away. She's driving us nuts. And Jesus says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And when she begs more, he says, is, is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she answers, actually, the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus says, wow, that is some faith. Okay, your request is granted. And her daughter was immediately healed from that moment. Uh, again, outside the Christological context, I'm not sure what to do with it. Okay, so we need to look within the Book of the New Sun, actually, to see how that dog imagery is used, not just in the case of Triskel, which is actually probably his first miracle, right, where Triskel was the smallest of those dead, and Severian resurrected him before he ever had the claw there, so that we know it's kind of an innate power within him, but it's also a reminder of who he was as a boy, right, that that mercy that he has on the dog. He's like, I couldn't be so different that the boy that I was, right, would love this dog, and the man that I am would Right. And so uh, he kind of does it in remembrance of what he once was. But Triskel doesn't only appear there. The theme that I'm thinking of is actually tied into that thorn uh, on the beach there when Malrubius appears at the end of Citadel. Uh, um, Triskel also appears and Severian wants to go after him. He's like, I tried to follow him. And Malrubius stops him and says, you can't follow where he's going. There, right? That's the spiritual capstone of the series. It's not just that they're on holy ground. It's that Severian wants to go somewhere that he can never follow, but the dog can. And this That's fig- another Christological reference. Though. Now, hold on a minute. This figure, this image is repeated several times throughout the story. It's repeated in that chapter five legs, where what's the highest form of love? It's that between a dog and its master, our love for God. And also the autark Amir, the almost just, when he's sitting at that tree and he talks to wise men and he sees harlots and he sees wealthy merchants, who does he go to follow he goes to follow the dog when he gets up to go what does the dog do it abases itself before its master and so this then is the highest form of love and this is repeated here so it's not just christological in its context right it's also the way that creation bows to its master as a rightful servant the way that it obeys it and triskel embodies that but it also reminds severian of who he is when he sees Triskel, right? And so I think it's a really neat image. And the dog on the floor there is just him in his worshipful, rightful place, serving in an order that is greater than himself. Okay, yeah. That's kind of what I was going to say here, because what's kind of cool is that when Meshia first says that, he's like, of course not, the dog does that already, or will when we, we see him. He's, it sounds like he's just dismissing him. He's like, oh yeah, sure, you're, you can come. 
but it's not like once you put it in the context of all the other ways that a dog's love for its master is used in the rest of the book, that's actually kind of saying, um, yes, you'll be given the greatest place of honor because you, you recognize your place in this, this order of, of beings. Is that right? Is that kind of how you're, you're seeing? Yes. Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, (laughs) I love the dog imagery in this book. So, uh, let's see, uh, Meshia says to the Contessa, has it not struck you that I may know more of him you call the universal mind than your autark does of himself? Not only your universal mind, but many lesser powers wear out humanity like a cloak when they will, sometimes only as concerns two or three of us. Hmm. We who are worn are seldom aware that seeming ourselves to ourselves, we are yet demiurge, paraclete, or fiend to another. That's it. Now, wait a minute. Whoa, that's really, that's really interesting. Uh, finally, he does address her question. Uh, maybe I, you know, how could you be so crazy as to think that the autark is the universal mind? And he says, well, maybe I know more of the u- universal mind than the autark does. And he says, not just the increate himself, but even lesser powers, uh, might possess us. Oh, that is wear us like a cloak. We aren't aware that they're possessing us. We think we are just ourselves as always, but in those moments we are demiurge, paraclete, or fiend. The demiurge, of course, is the Gnostic creator of the world, a lesser created being rather than the increate. A fiend, I guess, refers to a demon in this context. Paraclete, this is a Christian term for the Holy Spirit. Uh, Literally, it means advocate or helper. Even more literally, it means the one who walks beside. He seems to be saying that, for example, a a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit actually is the Holy Spirit. Um, A person who God is working through actually is God in that instance. Does that sound like I'm following where they're leading? I think so. And also the new son— Right, Severian is the new sun, and there's the fountain that is the new sun. But in some of the theological debates that we get in here, the increate also seems to be, you know, have an aspect that is the new sun, and the conciliator is a part of the increate. And so, I mean, that's a pretty, you know, homoousius in nature, almost like crisis to God. And so, yeah, sure, right, exactly. And it's also kind of going back to that dog imagery, there is something of him saying there, well, okay, maybe the autark is not literally God, but he is the figure of authority here. So he's serving in a role like God would. So to give him some kind of respect, or at least to to hold, in some ways, to hold him to his responsibility in the, the position that he holds is what you should be doing. I think this is the biggest philosophical difference between Milton and Wolf. So I'll let you finish that, and then I'm going to talk about yeah. that for a second. Oh, good. The only other thing I was going to say was... Um, it's also kind of a good way of just talking about how archetypes work. <laughs> like, you know, divinities come through because archetypes can work. And and that's also the same kind of idea we get about how, um, like in the Renaissance, they, they talk about the great chain of being or how, you know, this, just like the dog and the master, that is just a dog and a master can be a beautiful relationship. It's also, you know, a, a microcosm of humanity and God. Of, of servant and, and a sort of the ideal relationship where 
all these patterns can be repeated and played and they also can look different from different perspectives um which is the other tricky thing here that's that's that point i think about how you know one person can be someone's fiend but also their their savior or something like that which we kind of get with severian a lot of the times where he's going to be the conciliator he's also a torturer but it's the relationships that they play out in the long run that really matter. That's how they are. Right. And I mean, also, you know, that, yeah, good ultimately does serve evil. All, all the things that happened are for the greater glory of God. And this is actually the argument mm-hmm. in Milton as well. Yeah. But the, you know, I, I've said many times that, you know, paradise lost, you know, Milton says, Oh, I'm going to justify the ways of God to man and explain the, 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 you know, the, the happy fall more or less, right. The, 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 mm-hmm. the, the happy fault that occurred there for the fall of Adam. But he actually does have like this resistance to secular authority. And so some people who read it see like Satan as the heroic figure who's rebelling, but he's actually mm-hmm. usurped the one and only legitimate authority. Whereas in Wolf, when you see another character come up and imitate God, good things start to happen, even though they have bad motives, right? Like Typhon and the world and all that, he winds up doing something uh, to to memorialize and preserve the people that that he loves and that, that love him. So he becomes more than the monster Satan figure that he was, even though his character never really leaves that reality, right? He's always going to be that two-headed monster who's masturbating. And yet, right, he, he creates something beautiful as well in his imitation of God. And even the, the rhetoric around him becomes like that of God, so that the demon who imitates God takes on those godly qualities as well. And I think that's very different in Milton and Wolf. I think that they have very different paradigms there regarding authority and whether authority of any kind can actually be vested outside of God or not, or whether God works through authorities. Because I say, I would say that Milton says, no, the only legitimate authority is God himself. That is it, right? And then I think Wolf would say, yeah, there are many, many authorities of lesser and greater kind. And sometimes the paraclete or whatever it is actually does shine through there. So, I, yeah, I, I think this is also a theme in the Book of the Long Sun, that if you have a any kind of a leader who, somewhat, who wants to complete a project, no matter how evil is he might be, so to speak, he has to act like a good person. He has to, because otherwise his project will fail. Uh, you know, if you have a, a leader who wants to, you know, control the whole world, he's, you know, he's your, your typical movie villain. And if, if, unless he acts like a good, kindly king and make sure his people are fed and, and cared for, then his, you know, his project will fail. By the same token, I think there is some of that idea here that the different roles that we play in life, we might find ourselves uh, taking the role of God in in one case or a devil, a demon in another. Um, I think there is this one other instance. uh, I remember, and I've mentioned this countless times, when Severian is praying in Citadel of the Autarch and, you know, he starts praying and then it feels like he's praying to himself. You know, he, he sees a vision of himself and he flies into his own ear and there he is praying. Do you mind if I read that one? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I bowed my head and feigned to be deep in prayer. Very readily I found the pretense became the thing itself. I remained conscious of my kneeling body, but only as a peripheral burden. 
My mind was among the starry wastes, far from Earth, and indeed far from Earth's archipelago of island worlds. And it seemed to me that that to which I spoke was farther still. I had come, as it were, to the walls of the universe, and now shouted through the walls to one who waited outside. Shouted, I said, but perhaps that is the wrong word. Rather, I whispered, as Barnock, perhaps, walled up in his house, might have whispered through some chink to a sympathetic passerby. I spoke of what I'd been when I wore a ragged shirt and watched the beasts and birds through the narrow windows of the mausoleum, and what I had become. I spoke, too, not of Vodalus and his struggle against the Autarch, but of the motives I'd once foolishly attributed to him. I did not deceive myself with the thought that I had it in me to lead millions. I asked only that I might lead myself. And as I did so, I seemed to see with a vision increasingly clear through the chink in the universe to a new universe bathed in golden light where my listener knelt to hear me. What had seemed a crevice in the world had expanded until I could see a face and folded hands in the opening like a tunnel running deep into a human head that for a time seemed larger than the head of Typhon carved upon the mountain. I was whispering into my own ear. And when I realized it, I flew into it like a bee and stood up. Everyone was gone, and a silence as profound as any I've ever heard seemed to hang in the air with the incense. The altar rose before me, humble in comparison to that Aegea and I had destroyed, yet beautiful with its lights and purity of line and panels of sunstone and lapis lazuli. Now I came forward and knelt before it. I needed no scholar to tell me the Theologumenon was no nearer now, yet he seemed nearer, and I was able, for the final time, to take out the claw, something I had feared I could not do. So, yeah, so in this, he's, it starts like he's talking to the Increate through the, like, like he's making confession, right? He's in the confessional, uh, talking to the Increate through the uh, chink in the walls of the universe. And then next thing you know, he's, he's flying out into that world. He, it's basically himself in prayer that he's talking to. And I, I've always thought this sounds positively heretical. But when you take that idea and, and kind of link this to the idea that when God is is working through us, we are in a sense for that person we are, you know, we are helping perhaps, uh, we are God in those in that moment. And maybe I makes me feel <laughs> a lot less uh, squeamish about the the <laughs> heresy of the of the matter. Well, you know, beyond just the heresy of this particular point, we have the plot, right, that, that's revealed in Earth of the New Sun and also the approaching white fountain that showed up as a flambeau in the very second chapter of Shadow of the Torturer there, where he is, a sense, a creature of Yassad talking to himself, where he says, hey, the white fountain is also me. It is the new sun as I'm the new sun who's bringing it, right? Even though it's his son, it's one in being with him in a way. And so him praying up there to the higher universe of Yassad that penetrates there, even though he's praying to God, he also is kind of talking to himself there, that source of his power that allows that. And the claw, the real claw of the conciliator, right? The thing that this is just a symbol of is the white fountain. That's the source of his power. That's what's doing everything all along. And Wolf outright says this, right? In, um, and I think Castle of the Otter, right? Where, hey, you know, the claw of the conciliator is a, is a symbol of the new sun in a way. 
right? That's that's kind of what it mm-hmm. is. It symbolizes the white fountain. So here, right, the symbols are being stripped away and he sees himself in that. And so I don't see it necessarily so much as heretical. as just a very kind of confused theology where in this particular case, yes, he is one in being with the white fountain. Is that white fountain really God? No, but it certainly has powers beyond what we would think immortal, including, you know, powers over life and death that most people will never get to experience. There's another way to think of it too, which is that everything we've just been talking about is how symbols work in the way mm-hmm. he talks about it at the beginning, right? Like what a symbol does is you take on a symbol or an archetype or a role or anything and you start to play out the logic of that and it changes you. It starts to become that thing. So even if you are a lesser version of it, like Severian becomes a soldier in his service to Vodalus, but what he really starts to learn is how to be a servant to the autarch, which starts to teach him how to be a servant to the increate, which starts to, you know, all that kind of thing. And it's, it's what the, the, the symbol itself is, it's almost like this is a theology of symbols is what it's doing here. Mm. That, that, and I, that's the other thing I was going to say is like, there's that famous thing that people like to talk about where Wolf says, Oh yeah, I think that, you know, the Greek and the Roman gods were real and people think, Oh, that's really weird. He believes in pagan gods. It's, well, he believes in symbols. Those were symbols of really powerful forces and they work. They, they, cause you to do certain things. If you pray to Venus all the time, you're thinking about love. You're trying to live a, a kind of, loving thing and it's just you know there are maybe other better symbols but i feel like this is kind of it's really the real point here is both theological and symbolic at the same time um and you know we were talking before about like you know being a catholic or being a christian and and reading this stuff but you can also be an outsider like me but read that about symbols and and be like oh i i really kind of get that logic and it starts to make a whole lot more sense than other ways I've thought about it. Also, right, where he talks about, you know, how Vodalus struggled against the autarch, what he believed was actually his intentions there. He says, I learned to rule myself, really, right? That's what he kind of talks about. And that that is the meaning of autarch, to become an Mm -hmm. autarch self-ruler there. And so that governing of the self, I think, is what makes him worthy uh, to be in that particular position. It's, It's what makes humanity worthy, to rule yourself, finally, in a way to be more than just a beast driven by instinct and nature, but to really reach for something higher there to be worthy of it. Okay, good. I'm glad we spent so much time on that because actually I've got a huge star by this passage <laughs> from what I, I was like as I was reading. I'm like, this is this is central stuff to mm-hmm. kind of yeah. whole, and the whole book. Also, his whole point in going in, in you know, in the, the surface level plot, what is his motivation? It's to return the claw of the conciliator to the religious people from from whom it came right from that to that group. This is where he accomplishes his quest. This is this is the end of the quest, actually, even though it doesn't, you know, like the plot lines don't quite end here. This is the whole thing that has been driving him for the majority that's beyond just what people tell him to do. This is what he decided to do. And he did it here. Mm, Gotcha. Yeah. Where he became an autark, where he became self-ruling. Okay. All right, so yeah, all of that in a side a side note to the Contessa. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. Okay. Who's the Contessa here? Um, I am. I, believe, okay. I think so. The Contessa, she says, "That is wisdom I have gained late. If I must fade with the new sun's rising, in other words, like yeah, if I'm about to die, then I I just learned that lesson too late." And she says, "Is it past midnight?" Nearly so, Your Grace. The approach of the new sun is imminent. 
And then the, yeah, the Contessa says, pointing to the audience, all these fair folk, what will befall them? What befalls leaves when their year is past and they are driven by the wind? If. Yeah. Meshia turns to watch the eastern sky as though for the first sign of dawn. And the Contessa is still like in her river. If. What if? If my body held a part of yours, drops of liquescent tissue locked in my loins. If it did, you might wander earth for a time longer, a lost thing that could never find its way home. But I will not bed you. Do you think that you are more than a corpse? You are less. <laughs> That's cold, cold, yeah, cold. <laughs> it's, but it's kind of like we're going here between like different individual levels and sort of but then the last thing a contessa says is you say you are the father of all things human it must be so for you are death to woman and the stage darkens so but this is cool because like you have that passage where like we we each kind of talked about our own little reverie of oh this is such a beautiful thing and and whatnot but the scene continues and contessa brings up okay but i'm gonna die Everybody, um, when the new sun comes, everyone's going to die. I think that right. that much is clear. And remember, that was not clear if for for readers who first read this book, right? And so, so she says that thing about like, but but is there some way I could gain immortality or at least live longer? Maybe if I carried your your you your if I had your child. Yeah, if I had yeah. your child. But um, he calls her there. A lost thing that could never find its way home. She would live, but she wouldn't be home. What is the home of humanity, the true home? When you die, it's the return of the spirit to, to something higher, right? And so she's locked there. She would never reach the only transcendent she could ever know. How do we take that then? So in this, right, the exaltants, old humanity, yesterday's news, they want to continue. They want the future of the earth, the corporeal earth to be theirs. It's not. Their time is done, right? And Severian actually makes this explicit in Earth of the New Sun where he says, hey, we look at a corpse and we see pain and suffering, but we only see that which is left behind. The glorious part has moved on. Right. It's far beyond that. That's not what you are. You're not just that body there that is, is suffering. We've left that all behind. And so here she's saying, I want to continue. And he says, well, you know, if you had my liquescent tissue or whatever it is, my sperm inside you, you might be able to propagate and live for a little time, but you wouldn't truly reach transcendence. You wouldn't ascend to what you could be. You're just, you're less than a corpse and you're just a, a body that's here on the earth An earth. It's no less than a corpse. corpse. What is less than a corpse? Dust. I mean, like just, just not, it's, it's not even human anymore. It's just like, you know, you're, you're, you're a memory more or less. Mm -hmm. um, and that's exactly what, what the statue is going to come to represent a memorial of humanity in a way, which we'll talk about in a bit, but here the exaltants and everything that they are, it, it will not be in the future of Ushis. And so, yeah, this is still just on that meta level. It's about humanity and it's about it's not about an individual story it's about who's going to continue um the desires that they have right and what the new sun will actually bring is it fecundity or is it just um you know if it if if these humans survive is it just lingering in that kind of death-like state for just a little bit longer well i would say that's a good darn good place to stop in misery and 
Bad, listen, you're less than a corpse and we go fade to there, black. There's another way to, to see that, though. I mean, there's another way to see that, like what he's saying, though, is there's kind of the platonic or neoplatonic idea here that he's like, no, no, no. Now that you realize this, if you wanted to just keep living on Earth forever, you haven't really quite got it that the point is really more about what you can learn about the the higher thing so it's almost like i feel like what meshia is trying to tell her is it's not just continued life on earth that you really want right like when once you really learn what the autark is or or what let's say how the symbols are really how god operates in how the symbols operate in everything then you're okay with death because you you realize that this is you know, this is just playing a role in one thing. And and I think we don't get it spelled out here, but I mean, like the way Plato talks about it is now you'll get to go be pure form and it's like you be, be pure symbol and <laughs> all the time, like like up, up back with God and ideas and whatnot. And I think he's, Meshia is kind of suggesting that if you just want it more life here, you're not really understanding the spiritual side of things. Now, there's one thing, Craig, that I want to talk about, the relationship between things and symbols, where, you mm-hmm. know, where Wolf talks about this, whether it's better, you know, to have water or to have what water symbolizes. He says, hey, you can't drink a symbol. And so I don't think it's very useful to become a symbol per se. I think that the spirit, Wolf would say, is not a symbol. It's it's real somehow i mean now that we can split hairs all you want but like the way that you you know read that passage is kind of like ah this is the triumph of symbolism and and you know how this this here return to a symbol i think i think it has to at least from wolf's point of view eventually come back to a more theological concrete not corporeal but still real uh rather than symbolic yeah i think absolutely i think that's definitely where wolf wants to to take things like yeah it's not you know, I'm, I'm sort of given a voice to that kind of, you know, less theological version yes. of it. But no, I think Wolf definitely, like once you see the way he talks about things here, um, it's, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, I don't know that the theodicy and the apology for God actually, uh, it doesn't work if you don't do that. <laughs> you got to have all that stuff because because then it's it's the bigger thing. Well, I got to um, say, I... I like this section a lot better than I have the last, <laughs> last two episodes. I feel much on firmer ground. Uh, I feel like all of my theories have been confirmed and, <laughs> uh, and I've left you to, you know, scrambling for scraps of, of metaphor. I, I, I admire your effort though. Thanks for playing everybody. <laughs> Thanks for playing. Yes. <laughs> well, see, eventually you will, you will abandon that, that, that first Bavarian thing, you know, it's, it's just it's a very unlikely. It's yeah. very unlikely. This is my religion now. Okay. <laughs> and so I should say to those who are, who maybe are, are reading along and you're like, okay, so this is our third time and we're on page one, two, three, four, five, six of the play. <laughs> um, and there are, there's more than we're not even halfway through. Um, I think we'll, we'll do our best to, make a little more progress we're not gonna yeah we're just gonna plug and on we're just gonna go on and on and on so that i never have to look back on this <laughs> play again <laughs> but i think we kind of like this one actually i feel like we laid a lot of groundwork for what's going on and i feel like we'll a lot of later parts are gonna sort of play this idea out 
in a bunch of ways. And also the end is more directly just repeated at the end of Earth of the New Sun. Like you just point at it and say, well, this is the ending that Wolf intended. We just couldn't quite see it from our point of view. And as I already think I commented, the, the most interesting aspect of that is how often the characters are gender swapped for whatever reason. Uh, really, really fascinating, you know, like here you have the prophet and she's a prophetess, you know, and here you have the autark and it's, it's Valeria rather than Severian. And so, you know, are there other characters that we don't necessarily see as that way? It's, it's really interesting uh, to me anyway. I don't know. Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll fight yeah. that out on okay. another day. So, <laughs> but as, but we can fight this one out. We can fight this one out on Facebook or on subreddit or Twitter or email Patreon site or, you know, the master Slack channel. You can find out how to do all that in the show notes you can leave a review if you want on apple podcasts or stitcher or however it is you kids do that now or you can tell your wolf reading friends which is literally the, like i said the best thing you can do to get anyone to listen to anything if you just recommend it to them and until we continue with this play may the moira favor you and make you more than a corpse <laughs> please <laughs> I never eat dinner tonight, so I'm like eating in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Not to chew into the microphone. Okay. Um, He's going to. Oh, so did you send? Hang on. Let's see what you sent. Oh, we lost Craig. Craig's gone. Yeah, he just said I lost both of you. Tessa says, beginning to weep. Am I? Oh, I'm the Contessa. Whoops. You are. Um, that's you. <laughs> she says, the news. And, and so there is a bit of a, a learning curve when you're not used to bureaucracy <laughs> so, yeah, so. well the whole point of bureaucracy is to make sure that you never really get at ease with yeah. the whole thing oh yeah that is true craig compared it to a medieval mori comment on oh, one Facebook. one question i just have yeah. to ask is there a prometheus constellation no okay shouldn't there be don't well, you darn. think there should be? i was well it seems well, like i yeah. mean orion is the prometheus constellation Okay. But um, Orion's not, he's not supposed to be a Titan, is he? He's uh, well, Yes, it depends oh, on he? which myth you're talking about. Okay. But I mean, I mean, I think actually Orion himself is a Titan. Um, but, you know, uh, Prometheus is just like the hanged man. Uh, mm -hmm. He is also a hanged man. And mm -hmm. yeah, Prometheus and Odin, um, for, as I read it, as I look up in the sky, um, they are the same hmm the same image all right looks like a uh a let's try again i've got something going on in my head yeah it's sound going on in my head hold on she looks like a anything we say we can gather and put together and like used against us absolutely yeah. i tried to interrupt so many times like throughout the the course of that at the start i was just like oh, oh well, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so i think that just tells the future basically um so uh, you know, it, it's so then then the autark. We need somebody to be the autark. 
I'll be the uh, wait, wait, you, who's you, the Autark? Was I was still the was I wait. I was Messian. Who was the Autark mm-hmm. before? I can't remember. I'll be the Autark this time, but and I know I'll go back and listen sometimes to stuff and I'll be like, ooh, I didn't do that one well. Like so I'm I've I've gotten I've realized that it it really does have to kind of set a high bar if I'm gonna if I'm gonna take out an uh or an um because it just starts to sound fake. <laughs> That's the way I wanna sound. Fake? <laughs> sound like I never say uh or um. Um the only thing is that it would sound like I, it gets to the point where it's like, it sounds like you're obviously taking out something and yeah. splicing oh. it together. Oh, yeah. You don't want to ever and do that. I'm like, yeah, that sounds like. I do. It's, it's like, if there's a long gap, I'm going, um, and then you think about then. Yeah. yeah. Still my most annoying verbal tick is that right. After every like statement, I'm like, right, right, right. <laughs> I, I'm, oh, I'm going to try to eliminate that a little bit if i can. i have done i have noticed so many like i know james it bugs him for the the you know like it bugs him when he says that mine is like it's interesting that like i apparently mm-hmm. everything to me is interesting, interesting. that yeah. <laughs> everything is it's interesting that so i yeah i know i went through about two episodes of trying to take out every time i said that because i got super self-conscious and it sounded bad and i actually yeah. went in my up. writing, when I wrote Between Light and Shadow, you know, I did those all uh, disconnected and I was posting them to the earth list. And so, like, they, they weren't written with unity in mind. The sections weren't consistent at the first mm-hmm. start before I realized I wanted to put it together. And so there was no sense that I was overusing certain words or using some words always, like, kind of just slightly incorrectly, you mm-hmm. know, like like dualism when I started. You know, I, I tended to just use, like, that dichotomy between the spiritual and the physical. But, yeah. like, dualism is actually a little bit more precise than that. Mm-hmm. And so when I would say Wolf's dualism, it wasn't really accurate to philosophy or, you know, even like theology. Really. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. uh, another one I did, I'd be like, it presages this, it presages that. And then when I, when I saw all of them together in the copy, I'm like, man, I need to never use this word. ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But no, I get it. I get it. And there's so many other things, like just the way I phrase things, I'll listen to it and be like, Jesus, that's such a simple <laughs> idea. Why did it take me so long to get that out? <laughs> but, but the okay. thing is, you notice yours more. Like I remember, James, when you first complained about the, the about you saying, um, you know, like, you know, or yeah. whatever. And I, it literally, I had to go back and listen to it before I, rec- I realized you'd even done it. <laughs> it's just, we're so much more sensitive to our own stuff well I, I, well actually i'm very sensitive like when we did the interview with don mates he had this tick you know like you know like you know like you know like and mm-hmm. i uh I, yeah i was i tried to rigorously take those out because yeah. i knew that it would drive him batty when yeah he, when he heard it yeah yeah well you know what james worst tick actually is uh, I have having different ideas for <laughs> <First>, persevering. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Hamlet's Mill. I have many. Yeah, yes, Hamlet's yeah, Mill and Persevering. There you go. <laughs> yep, there you go. I don't know. So, I'm I'm pretty happy though. I like all the like people will post on Apple reviews and stuff. Like I still think one of my favorite ones is the guy who was like, they come up with a host of theories. Do I agree with anything they say? Almost never, but I'm never, <laughs> yeah, but I'm yeah. never going to miss an episode. Cause I come away <laughs> with like such a broader perspective on them. Like that's, that's cool. That's true. Okay. So I'm not really positive where we dropped off. I think uh, whatever. Okay. We're going to start. Beep.